also when we did the sacrifices, body parts, for whatever reason, I guess it kind of makes sense, were cut up into pieces. And I remember a procession, almost like a parade, celebratory type thing. And the children had to carry trays or baskets or buckets or something of these body parts. And then we would take them and dump them into a large opening, like a cave or a sinkhole or whatever, which was out in the Mount Victory backwoods area. Produced and recorded at Pure Grain Studios, I'm Nathan Isaac, and this is Pennyroyal. Okay, here's two things to think about in that. It's called two, it's got two names, right? This, even the state has got two names. Um, or, or what euphemisms for one, the dark and bloody ground, but also the happy hunting ground, both of which would designate them as belonging to Pan, who is the master of the hunters. Shh. Yeah. And then master of the bloodshed, too, of the ritual shedding of blood. Kentucky has long been known as the dark and bloody ground, the place where Native Americans fought over the land and its plentiful resources and good hunting, but where they never created any permanent settlements because the area was seen as sacred or hallow or cursed. But that isn't exactly true, and more so that's a myth, a misnomer, created and spread by the first pioneers that settled the Commonwealth. Experts believe that the source of this myth is most likely a statement made by the Cherokee leader Dragon Canoe in March 1775 when Richard Henderson's Transylvania Company was negotiating land rights with the Cherokee Nation at Sycamore Shoals. Dragon Canoe is reported to have said that they had secured a dark and bloody ground, but there's no actual evidence that he ever said those words. But the Iroquois do have a word, Kintaten, which means land of tomorrow. And a related Iroquois word meant meadow or prairie. The Mohawk tribe and the Seneca tribe both also had the words Kintake. There's a more interesting legend from the Delaware tribe that tells the story of an ancient group from the Northwest who allied themselves with the Iroquois to fight the Allegheny, the supposed original inhabitants of Kentucky, which may very well have been the Adena and Hopewell as we know them today. There are no records or oral history of what these ancient tribes were battling over, but the legend states that the Allegheny were defeated and driven to extinction during the battle, and their land, which they called Kentucky, was cursed by their priests before they were slaughtered and thereafter forever known as a dark and bloody ground. Regardless of the origin of the phrase dark and bloody ground, there persists nonetheless 
a violent and bloody identity that stuck with Kentucky since the days of pioneer settlers and continues today in the hollers and backwoods. The Commonwealth has a violent history and a heritage of violent tales. There are many, many stories of violence and death across the Pennyroyal, and some of the most bizarre tales of bloodshed are here in Pulaski County. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so when we started looking into it, I, you know, you don't really know how bad a place is, right? Like when you, especially, we don't know what, you know, life was even like anywhere in the, you know, in the early 1900s or whatever. So I thought, well, it could just be the case that, you know, like anywhere else, this could have been, you know, a place that, you know, was way more barbaric then and, you know, slowly got civilized and really everywhere is like this, right? <clears throat> And so, but as I started looking into like how Somerset was seen outside of Somerset, and I started looking at, uh, specifically, I really started looking at the Cincinnati newspapers because, um, in the early 1900s, when the railroad is constructed to Somerset, and then, uh, in around 1920, there was a new station that was built, um, in Somerset, and that really linked, um, Somerset to Cincinnati psychologically, right? So a lot of the investments that were coming in, a lot of, um, I think the investors that paid for the train station, I think, were from Cincinnati. The railroad itself, you know, is part of Cincinnati, and the, the guy, the the railroad um there was always some law enforcement authority that was kind of policing the area between Cincinnati and Chattanooga or Cincinnati and Knoxville and so that's what led to a lot of the consolidation of strangeness i think um so you know i was like well is how is it seen there you know how is somerset seen there and kentucky in general is seen as like this barbaric place you know it, uh, starting in the late 1800s and then uh by the night by the turn of the century it's considered just absolutely epic you know there's head there's headlines in the in the cincinnati newspapers about somerset's reign of terror and the number of murders that are happening and this is this is right at the beginning of the 20th century um well they they asked a senator uh who was running for uh office like why uh, kentucky was so violent you know so he was going to be a senator for the state of kentucky he was from somerset and um so he gives his explanation for it and i think this really sets up the how this all happened right um I want to read his quote. Uh, I read, uh, they, they asked him why there were so many murders in Kentucky, and he uses Somerset as a, as an example. I recollect that previous to the year, uh, 1860, only three murders had occurred in Pulaski County, a mountainous region, and each, I know, made a terrible impression on the minds of the people. When the guerrillas, federal and confederate, appeared and periodically burned our homes and killed our people, one neighbor turned on another, crime got to be a common and horrible employment, and in instances, even a creation feuds started ambuscades came into fashion young republicans were even forbidden to call the daughters of democrats masked men members of the ku klux klan rode about at night whipping and killing in those days i more often slept with my clothes on than off a rifle at the head of my bed and several pistols pistols under my pillows not being a native of pulaski county in somerset when i first began to research and dig into the history of the area, I had to rely on local folklore and interviews with 
people like Rod Zimmerman, who's a local DJ and historian. 1798, uh, Thomas Hansford and a group of people came down from Somerset County, New Jersey, and settled in this area. I assume they all sat down at the uh, cool town springs and had a, a refreshing cup of water and thought, huh, let's just settle here. So 1798's when they got here. Uh, it was incorporated as a city in 1887. And between uh, it becoming a city, or actually it was the county seat in 1802. Uh, like I said, the railroad came through in 1875, Southern Railroad, connecting Somerset with Cincinnati. And that brought a huge population boom, as well as industry. And... Uh, Things started happening in Somerset, especially around the railroad. Griffin Avenue, which is kind of run down now, they're making some uh, reparations on some of the older homes. But that was that was the elite. Some of the nicest, biggest homes were on Griffin Avenue, right there near the uh, depot. And there were actually two Somersets. There was downtown Somerset, and then there was Johnson Block and the depot area uh, around the railroad southern, uh, the south end of Somerset. And uh, because of the, the downtown and the railroad, they brought in the trolley cars, which basically transferred uh, people to and from the, the two cities. And passenger trains went away. Um, the depot area started kind of dwindling, and uh, Griffin Street dried up, High Street dried up. And uh, eventually, downtown dried up for quite a while. Trafficking. Well, that I mean, that started back when this was the little Queen City when we were a railroad town. The 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 depot. Uh, there was a, a hotel there called the uh, New New Cumberland Hotel, I think. And the stories of that was that was the hotel right off of the depot out of Cincinnati going to Florida that a lot of times when single women would travel, that this was deemed the hotel that they should stay in because of the security. And one of the women got raped. It was done by a local, uh, I, I can't remember if it was the mayor or the sheriff, and it all got swept under the rug. And it's that's in like shaking paper, the old that's the stuff that I found just looking at the at the old hotel and it's well, you know, it's got a checkered past. I'm like, well, what's the checkered past? It's like, well, this was notorious. You know, it was almost like uh inviting single women to stay here because it was so safe, and then you either never heard from these people again or bad things happened to them. And all the stories of violence here in Somerset and this strange, violent current prompted us to start digging even deeper into the stories and the history of bloodshed here. But there's definitely a, a really, really strange, dark history of this specific area. And you've got to wonder if it is something in the water if it is the geomagnetic fields from the Kentucky Anomaly, which are centered here, which are right beneath Pulaski County, has that been causing this area and causing people to be more violent? There's just an extremely violent history in this area. 
and you have to wonder what's causing it and why is it persisting today. Oddly enough, there's also a book that shares the name Dark and Bloody Ground with Kentucky. The book by author Darcy O'Brien outlines the murder of Roscoe and Tammy Acker by a gang of grifter killers who later hired Lester Burns as their defense attorney. Lester Burns Jr., a Clay County native that made his way to Pulaski County, high-profile defense attorney. Uh, People didn't go to court to see a case against people. They would check to see who the attorneys were, and if Lester Burns was in the courthouse, people filled the seats because it was a show. Uh, Lester started out as a Kentucky State Police trooper in the 50s. And while he was a trooper, he was attending law school at UK. And uh, his first job as an attorney was handling large numbers of coal miners' uh, black lung disability claims. That was in the 70s, before becoming a defense attorney. Now, when he became a defense attorney, he became a showman. Uh, he, he would be pleading on his knees in front of uh, jurors, uh, quoting Bible scripture. Uh, many have reported that he wrapped himself in the American flag. It was just a show. And he was good. He won because uh, many people said that he knew the law and he used it well. Um, Lester got involved with a man named Roger Epperson, who was one of three people that had been charged in the uh, murder of Tammy Acker. She was the daughter of uh, Letcher County physician R.J. Acker. This happened in 1985. And uh, Lester got involved uh, with payment from Roger Epperson and uh, was later indicted on helping to transport $175,000 cash of the $1.9 million cash that was stolen from the Acker estate. Uh, A lot of people reported that uh, Lester physically laundered the money, and I don't mean that as we think of laundering money today. He physically got on his hands and knees with uh, a wet washcloth, soap and water, and washed down the cash. Uh, whether to remove fingerprints, blood, who knows. But it was reported that he physically <laughs> cleaned $175,000 cash. He did a little time in federal prison for that, uh, 32 months in federal prison. He was released in 1990. And uh, from the time he was released until the time he passed away in 2015, he tried to get reinstated Uh, tried to get his law license back, and uh, that never happened. But uh, what a character. Um, It it, it was mixed. It really depended on uh, what side of the the courtroom you were on. If someone in your family uh, had been wronged by someone that Lester was representing, you hated him because, you know, if Lester was your attorney, you're going to win. Uh, if he was on your side, then he was he was fantastic because he would do anything inside the law to win the case for you. And it came with a stiff price uh, because before there were 
you know, uh, attorney's fees and guarantees and all that stuff, Lester, he, he made sure he did well too. So <laughs> you got your freedom and he got your money. So <laughs> that, that's actually how I heard that he got that coal mine. Was uh, yeah. because it was transferred because of a you know right. he represented somebody they couldn't pay him so exactly they, oh he was uh, according to my grandfather he was very colorful in the way that he took payment he was he was a, a big fan of barter he would uh, give you his services and if you had land or if you had cattle or what whatever you had of value then uh, Lester was your guy. Lester, for whatever reason, was often on the fringes of the darker dealings taking place on the Pennant Royal. He was almost caught up in an undercover federal drug bust in West Liberty, Kentucky, by the DEA. And that particular case shared many similarities to the drug trafficking operation that was being run by the company in Lexington, Kentucky, during the 1970s and 1980s. On September 11, 1985, Andrew Carter Thornton II jumped out of an airplane over Tennessee. As a result of the 75 pounds of cocaine strapped to his body, as well as a bulletproof vest, Browning 9mm automatic pistol, a 22 caliber Derringer, night vision goggles, books with names and codes, his parachute failed during the jump, and he plummeted to his death in the driveway of an old man in Knoxville, Tennessee. The plane that Thornton leapt from continued on its course until it crashed into the Blue Ridge Mountains. Thornton was a former Lexington, Kentucky narcotics officer who eventually became part of a larger domestic drug trafficking operation known as The Company that was covered in detail in investigative reporter Sally Denton's now famous 1989 book, The Bluegrass Conspiracy. The company was run by Jamil Jimmy Chagra, one of the largest drug traffickers in the U.S. He had an FBI file that was just over 65,000 pages long. The company was run by Jamil Jimmy Chagra, one of the largest drug traffickers in the U.S. He had an FBI file that was just over 65,000 pages long. Chagra lays claim to having commissioned the first assassination of a U.S. federal judge in the 20th century. When we started to see correlations between the Bluegrass Conspiracy and some of the rumors we were hearing here in Somerset, here in Pulaski County, and the potential that some of the murders, some of the unsolved disappearances could connect to those criminal enterprises, we contacted a parapolitical researcher named Steven Snyder, known online as Recluse, and asked him to give us a little more background into who the company was and what the Bluegrass Conspiracy really was a part of. Okay, so, um, and then another thing, I had also been kind of going back and looking at some of my stuff with the Bluegrass Conspiracy, and that revolved around an entity known as the Company, um, 
which had been set up largely by a lot of former military men and or police officers. It had gotten involved in arms trafficking, and then it had gotten involved in drug trafficking. Uh, eventually, it was linked up with the, the Medellin cartel in Colombia and all this other crazy stuff. But um, it had got started um, around the mid-70s, like 76, 77, uh, right around the time Crosby and um, Gutterma and all these other guys were like active in the coal industry. And uh, one of the early partners, or one of the two co-founders was a guy, I believe, named um, Bradley Bryant, if I'm not mistaken. And this guy had, uh, prior to setting up the company, he had been working with a guy in Pennsylvania called Biff Halloran. Biff Halloran was, uh, I believe, a member of the Genovese crime family in New York. And he had almost a total monopoly on uh, the concrete, you know, bracket there basically if you wanted to pour concrete for any type of building project in new york city you had to go through biff anyway biff's attorney was roy Cohn, and Cohn had hooked him up with donald trump when trump had started to break into the real estate bracket there so i mean this was the guy that provided concrete for a lot of trump's you know early building projects and what have you so yeah and then biff turns around uh, you know shortly before i think he had linked up with trump and he starts working for uh you know, or Bradley, Bradley Bryant is working for him. And then after Bradley Bryant sets up the company with Andrew Drew Thornton, uh, he starts tossing them business and what have you. So these guys are actually doing, you know, these illicit activities with a guy who around the same time was a business partner of Donald Day Trump and whatnot. So anyway, uh, one of the things that they get into is they set up this company called Triad. And it's essentially a big paramilitary training facility um, that they had set up. And they were also using it to stash a lot of the firearms and what have you. And um, a lot of curious figures were receiving paramilitary training from it. Uh, there were a lot of reports of people from Nicaragua, you know, probably linked to the Contras who were getting training there. People from Libya probably trying to overthrow Gaddafi and what have you. So it seems like a lot of foreign nationals were being brought in there to be trained. But locals had also reported to the police that one of the groups being trained there were what they referred to as devil worshippers. Don't know any more details other than that, but that's what Sally didn't have put in the bluegrass conspiracy, and that was taken directly, I believe, from a police report. Locals described them as devil worshippers, and they were getting paramilitary training from this crime syndicate comprised largely of ex-military and police officers. And um, I looked up the location, and Denton doesn't give an exact location, but it was right off the banks of uh, Harrington Lake did a quick Google search on Harrington Link, and it turns out that's just a little over an hour from Somerset. So it's like right in that whole area you guys are talking about. And, you know, this is another report of some strange, you know, satanic cult or whatever you want to call it that was active in this whole region, uh, you know, from the mid to late 70s or something like that, that had shown up in a police report, apparently an investigation of this major, you know, drug syndicate and what have you, uh, drug syndicate that had a, a business associate that was also a business associate of Donald Trump. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's just really, really crazy. And I mean, it was all sort of unfolding in this same area. By the way, one other thing I just remembered too. Okay, so the attorney, Lester Burns, you guys were telling me about who um, had the relationship with Guantarmo and everything. Like, okay, Burns, from what I gathered looking online, had really gotten his start in law um, from the support of the Chandler family. I guess he had what, driven a car for Happy Chandler or something, and Chandler's wife was a really uh, 
you know, big fan of his or something like that. So one of the guys involved in the company was a guy named Dan Chandler. And I believe he was Happy's grandson, if I remember correctly. So there's also kind of that connection to Burns and the Chandler family, and then also the company as well. Um, and obviously just the whole time frame that was playing out, because this would have been right around the time Guantarmo like got into Kentucky and then died. And then I guess right around about maybe a couple of months later, the company's really up and running with the training facility about, you know, an hour away from Somerset. So <laughs> there were rumors in the mid 1980s and for years after that cocaine from the drug trafficking operation in Lexington, that was part of the bluegrass conspiracy, was being funneled into many of the counties in central and eastern Kentucky. Pulaski County was one of those counties. Lake Cumberland is also the houseboat capital of the world and a playground for the rich. People flock from surrounding states, Ohio, Indiana, Tennessee, and even overseas to enjoy fun and sun on the more than 1,200 miles of shoreline. Soon after I moved to Somerset, I heard rumors from my neighbors about sex and drug-fueled parties involving local, well-to-do elite. Some of these rumors involve sex with underage girls and boys, and the more bizarre rumors mentioned men dressing in robes and engaging in rituals. But these were just rumors. And the idea that there were locals in Pulaski County, in Somerset, performing rituals, ritual magic, just seemed absolutely unlikely and insane to me. That implied some underlying order or some group practicing ceremonial magic. And I thought there was no way any such group could exist in Pulaski County. But we were wrong. The rumors of the sex parties and the drugs among the town's upper crust, they're the same kinds of rumors that persist in any town. But the story I was hearing tied these rumors to the grisly unsolved murders of a young woman and her half-brother more than 25 years ago. Since hearing the rumors and reading about the murders, we've been able to distinguish much of the fact from the fiction. These murders were tragic, and they were horrifying, and they shook this town. And they're still unsolved. 21-year-old Linda Gibson, 4-year-old Cody Lee Garrett, her brother, uh, we're walking uh, near the corner of Bourne Avenue and South Central Avenue Sunday, July 3rd, 1994. They weren't seen again until Thursday, July 7th. Their bodies were found dumped near the back of what's now Village Green Subdivision. At the time, it was a field and uh, it was frequented by kids and uh, kids on dirt bikes, people walking, couples parking. Um, the, the bodies had been murdered at another location and dumped there along a fence row, which was basically on the city-county line. Um, on that morning... Thought it was appropriate to drive Linda and Cody's mother and her boyfriend to the site of the bodies. And uh, the two questions that I've had ever since 
1994 is how did know the bodies were there? And two, if you knew they were there, why would you take loved ones to the bodies? Because uh, they were not in good condition. Uh, This is July and this is four or five days. And currently has six active Facebook accounts. You can go to Facebook and there he is everywhere. I just want to know how did know they were there and why did he take them to them? And Sammy Katrin was, there was obviously the dispute in terms of the city. The city and county. Yeah. Um, I, I've talked to former officers that said that was botched, that uh, evidence was not properly gathered, that the scene was compromised, um, that, you know, one body on this side of the fence, this body, that side of the fence, who gets it, who got it. It, it was uh, it was not handled very well, and I also have heard from former um, uh, law enforcement that Frank Abbott was questioned, evidence was gathered improperly, and had to be thrown out. And I don't know what the evidence was. I mean, I've everybody's heard this, that, and the other, but all I know or was told that uh, evidence was gathered improperly, had to be thrown out, and it was vital evidence. So, who knows? I've got a few excerpts from newspaper articles that were published at the time. The badly deteriorated bodies of Linda Gibson, 21, and Cody Garrett, 4, were found about 1.30 p.m. Thursday in high weeds on the east side of a fence row southeast of Somerset, about 10 feet outside the corporate limits. The woman and child were last seen a week ago Sunday when they left their home on 324 High Street and went to a convenience store at the corner of Bourne and South Central Avenues. Witnesses observed them sitting on a bench outside of the store drinking soft drinks and eating potato chips between 2.30 and 3 p.m. that afternoon. Their family reported them missing to the Somerset Police Department the following day, July 4th. Sheriff Ketron said last night that field work, lots of field work, is continuing. He labeled the case top priority. Alan Stringer, Pulaski County Coroner, said the two died from multiple blunt force injuries to the head. No determination has been made concerning the type of weapon that may have been used, he said, and no obvious injuries were noted elsewhere on their bodies. Sheriff's Detective E.T. Schwartz, the county's lead investigator in the case, said today that vehicles had been searched in connection with the case. The investigation is being conducted jointly by the Somerset Police Department and the Pulaski County Sheriff's Department with cooperation from numerous other agencies, including the FBI and the Kentucky State Police Crime Lab. Initially, Sheriff Sam Ketron indicated an arrest was imminent, but later backed off that position. I feel good about making an arrest, the sheriff commented early last night 
He said three witnesses had been interviewed earlier yesterday. Katrin said early last night that an arrest was possible before morning, but later he said it was unlikely. The two killings mark the fourth and fifth homicides in Pulaski County this year, more than in the last several years combined. A profile of the killer or killers has not been completed by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, but police are working with a preliminary profile, Katrin said. Investigators are releasing virtually no new information about the murders, prompting some people to speculate whether an arrest will ever be made. Katrin said detectives are working as diligently on the case now as they were initially. Sources close to the investigation have said they believe an arrest will be made. People are still being interviewed, Katrin said, and police are working through a long list of people who may have had contact with Gibson or Garrett in the days prior to their deaths and who may have information. Some people have been eliminated as potential suspects, he said. But still, police still have not discovered where the murders took place and have not recovered any murder weapons, Katrin said. In September 1994, an ad was taken out in the Commonwealth Journal addressing the rumors that a prominent businessman had been arrested and charged in the double murder. As the ad states, the latest rumor names an elderly Somerset businessman who allegedly hired someone else to commit the heinous crime. The ad goes on to declare, let us make something perfectly clear. No one, we repeat, no one has been arrested in the double murder. We are convinced that officers are doing everything within their power to solve the crimes. It appears the time has come to offer a couple of tidbits of, a, uh, of unsolicited advice. If the elderly Somerset businessman, whose reputation is being ground by the rumor mill, finds out who is spreading the rumor, he's got an open and shut case of slander. And to those whose tongues are flapping, let us suggest that these persons get off the telephone and get a life. This, though, does, I believe, connect uh, to what happens in 1953, which is that the two girls show up from Somerset at a children's home in Louisville, and one of them starts stripping. Uh, I think there there's three girls total that are involved in the story. Uh, I think two of them are 14, one of them is 16. They, uh, one of them starts stripping at this place, and they're like, where did you learn how to do this? Where Where is this coming from? And she said that she was part of a prostitution ring at Somerset High School. Um, they, they, all three girls said they were part of this ring, and that there were more than a dozen girls involved and more boys than there were girls which is it's really strange this early on, you know, um, they said that they were, they, they called it a dope business. Um, <clears throat> Katrin's quoted in the paper saying he doesn't believe that there's marijuana there. It's clearly something besides weed, I think, you know, so this is Sammy Katrin's father. This is his father. The one that gets shot, uh, uh, later in, in the back, you know, uh, walking up, uh, college street, I think. Yeah. 
Yeah. So yeah, the, the, the dope, the dope and sex ring, uh, locally, I couldn't find any reporting for it. I did find reporting in major newspapers. It's reported nationally, but especially in the Cincinnati newspapers and in the Courier Journal out of Louisville. And, uh, the, they report that there's over 75 people involved in it, but at no point are they ever named. And so when Katrin is asked about it, like why, uh, when, when he's asked about it, he brushes it off saying he doesn't think he thinks it's all rumors. The girls were from broken homes. They were unreliable, uh, witnesses and he just brushes it off. There's never any, uh, local, I, I don't think there's any local knowledge of it. I've never heard it before. Does this area in particular experience more crime than other places in Kentucky? The crime rate is still reported to be less than the state crime average. But as someone who has spent a lot of time researching crime here, digging through mountains of old and current newspaper articles, interviewing witnesses and collecting stories, it seems to me that this place is unique in its violent and murderous pedigree. Is it possible that the intense geomagnetic fields could be affecting people here in Somerset and Pulaski County? There's research that suggests there could be a correlation. I think most people would find it surprising that in the 1920s, there were more than 400 cults in California with more than 200,000 members practicing everything from free love to devil worship and ritual sacrifice. I know it surprised me. Until I'd heard the rumors of a cult here in Pulaski County, I hadn't put much thought into cults in America. Growing up as a teenager in the 1990s, my parents definitely warned me to be careful and to stay away from areas where people were thought to be worshipping the devil. But which devil? Or which god? Or which creature? It was always ambiguous and always evil. Pamela Richards says that she was initiated into a cult here in Pulaski County when she was a child. For her, the existence of a cult in this area is a reality. Are you recording? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's right. And I'm sure you can... Anyway. So when my memories started coming back, um, I lived in Joplin, Missouri. I'm from here, moved out there for about 15 years, came back. Um, I came back on vacation and I went to the college to research through the old papers children who went missing or actually died or and what the cause might have been during the 60s because that's when I was introduced to the cult was in 1963. In 1963? How, mm-hmm. So how old were you? Three. Three. I was born in 60. It was amazing how many young children went missing. But So what prompted... So- the memories coming back, is that what prompted you yes. to kind of look deeper? And I remember mom telling me, my mom would say, uh, don't you got off too far, especially if we were in town. Now, when we, you know, living out in the country, I would get away from the abuse um, with my dog as often as possible. But when we were in town, she would hold on to me or say, okay, you stay right by me because someone may kidnap you. We met a lady not long ago who grew up out towards Shopville area during the same time frame, blonde-headed, and said that she, too, was told as a child, you don't go anywhere without someone with you because you could be kidnapped. They, The rumor was that blonde-headed, blue-eyed children yeah. were... Yeah. Yeah. That would be a great 
But in the sixties, though, we're mm-hmm. talking about that they were saying that people were taking blonde-haired, blue-eyed kids. Children. But there, but there were women and men. Oh like yes. Was, oh gosh, yes. And gatherings were just sometimes there were large gatherings. Yes. Like gatherings that would involve people coming from other places, probably. I remember specifically hearing there were four different states. I don't know that I can get them all right now. Or cities: Chicago, Philadelphia, St. Louis, somewhere down south in Georgia, where they were bringing children up. That's where. The, that's what I was going to ask you too. The like kids what? were kidnapped in those cities and brought to this particular function, organization, cult, whatever you want to call it, yeah, yeah. and sacrificed. <clears throat> I wonder, do you think the kids were uh, homeless kids, or no? You think they were just they snatched yes. kids? Yes, I think they were kidnapped. I mean, do do you think that it that it involved a large number of people in town? Yes, well known people. Yeah, yeah. I have my suspicions, and I'm not sure to say that yet or not without yeah. more proof. And I'm not even sure how to get that proof yeah. because for me, you know, as a kid hearing numbers, but I remember seeing faces. Mm-hmm. Some of these people also came to my house. Uh, my mom and grandmother, well, it doesn't matter. My mom and grandmother pent me up to men up until I was 11 years old to help pay the light bill. They called it the light bill, not the electric bill back in those days. Mm-hmm. And I remember the is person came to the house. Um, have you ever seen that person in town? If I have, there are people that I have seen since I've been back from Joplin. I came back in 2015. And when I see them, I know there's a deeper connection. And uh, these people who came to the events were not always from here, especially the larger gatherings. There were it was like a, a regional type thing, if you will, uh, a regional conference for Satanists. Uh, mm-hmm. They would come from different states, different counties. And those were like big events. Yes, but there were a lot of small. Two and three hundred people would come to those. Predominantly the. Oh, I'm gonna. I'm a, I would average around twenty to twenty-five would be the average for normal mm-hmm. event here. Yes. Right. Yeah. And I don't. I, and I. I don't recall being taken to another location because the family members would come in from Indiana and would stay two or three days, and then they'd have to go back home. And that's when all of it would happen. Yes. I don't know how my cousin was involved. I have no clue. But I do remember there were doctors and lawyers. There was a judge. Uh, Most people were assigned a number. Names were never given. I have, as I've gotten older and done a lot of therapy, memories have come back. And I know there was a bald-headed guy, a large bald-headed guy. Um, He was kind of like the leader. And you know how in the Bible, God is, I am. This guy was, is. Is, just I-S, is. Um, so the night that I am dedicated, so we get out there. He drives. It's just he and I in the car. And he comes around to the passenger side, helps me get out of the car, takes all my clothes off and puts on this black silk cape over me. Um, I had long blonde hair, blue eyes. And so we go over to where there is a rock kind of altar area built that I have drawn pictures of. Um, that night, there were many people there. So I'm figuring it was Halloween. There are various ceremonies and things throughout the year that we would go to. And sometimes, you know, 10, 15 people, other times several hundred. 
Um, and so that night he, and I'm still alert, so whatever drugs I ingested didn't kick in until later. But I remember him carrying me in his arm um, into this throng of people. And the guy on the, you know, behind the altar is, is I don't, can't remember, I don't know what he said. But at some point my cousin says, uh, this is the one that I have told you about. Um, I want to present her to you and for you to use however you see fit the remainder of her life. And we are dedicating her this night to do the work of Satan. And so he holds me up, lifts me up, my cape falls, you know, I'm naked and all that. Um, whew, sorry. I remember laying there on that altar thing. Um, I don't know if there was a rug, animal skins, I don't know, but that part was soft. And there was a lot of drinking involved, um, blood. I remember blood has a distinct smell, um, and it was smeared all over me. Also, when we did the sacrifices, body parts, for whatever reason, I guess it kind of makes sense, were cut up into pieces. And I remember a procession, almost like a parade, celebratory type thing and the children had to carry trays or baskets or buckets or something of these body parts and then we would take them and dump them into a large opening like a cave or a sinkhole or whatever which was out in the Mount Victory backwoods area. As I grew into this I was I was supposed to have been a high priestess. I was also supposed to have been sacrificed at age 30. Three again there. Right. Uh, that became the three sacrifice of thirty. Which mm. three, yeah. Right. And I didn't pick up on that until Kyle brought did, that to did, my attention. Did they ever say the name of the I don't number recall. or anything like that? But everybody was referred to as the numbers. numbers. Yes. So, you know, initially I'm taught how to do sacrifices on animals, small animals. Um, and when you're jamming a sharp object into an animal, they scream. Um, when my memory started coming back of all of this, I would wake up hearing screams, um, not understanding at that point in time what they were, where they originated from, but as time went on, and I go through therapy and all that begins to make sense. And so as you grow and learn the trade, uh, then you are where you get to the point of sacrificing children. Uh, babies, um, all ages, adults, whatever. Um, I remember one Halloween specifically standing up by Iz, and, oh gosh, I guess I'm five or six years old, and they, I see this young boy, and I just knew what was going to happen. Um, and so in my mind, I'm screaming, run, run, run. But obviously his preparer, a preparer is a person, my cousin, who was preparing me for whatever was needed to take place. Um, he would be like at my head, you're my princess, you're my beautiful girl. Oh, I just love you so much while I'm being raped or, you know, whatever's taking place. And so the young boy um, is, is brought up and he just thought it was the coolest thing because of the drugs. I didn't realize until he gets up there and he's laid down. Uh, I guess that's when he starts realizing this is not good. And that's the clearest memory I have of my being involved in a 
person's offering, sacrifice. Who? Sorry. Yeah. So the washing of the water ritual involved children. Um, we would be held under the water. The more you struggled, the longer you were held under. And I remember children drowning. Um, that was too, um, you know, in doctrine, obedience, and, and what have you. But so I remember going to this stream. I can't remember where, but it was in that area because we walked there. Sorry, I'm going back there, and I can hear the wind in the trees and, and hear the rushing water. There's probably four or five kids, young children, 10, 12 adults, men and women. The men are the ones who pick the children up and take them and lay them in the water. Some are kicking and screaming and what have you. My preparer had told me, whatever you do, you lay very still. They will raise you back up. You will be okay. Just hold your breath. And obviously I did. Um, but I do remember seeing some who did not. And they would carry these limp bodies out. Yeah, washing of the water was a ritual that was utilized to, you know, cause obedience, uh, whatever. Break our spirit, maybe. Were they all in Compliance. robes when they did this too? Or people? No. People were plain clothes? They yes. Did, yeah. Yes. From what I remember, the robe wearing was more when the big ceremonies occurred. Do you feel like it was like supernatural what happened? Like, did you see like supernatural things or was it just people, crazy people with drugs? I have seen demonic manifestations. That's what I refer to it as. Mm. You know, there's demons, there's angels, what have you. Um, and again, some of that, and I've, I hope to find my drawing pad because I have a lot of those beings sketched out. Uh, but yes, I have seen them. Mm. Uh, I have seen them having sex with humans. Um, very bizarre creatures, scaly, slimy. Um, Multiple types of creatures. Yes, correct? not just one type. Yes, yeah. yes. Different very much. sizes. Yes. Or? Did it were the rituals to the effect of summoning things, or was it? I would suspect so. At some point, for me. I can, you know, the memories that I have are, as I'm being trained, mm -hmm. being up there front and center, uh, but it would become like this frenzied craziness of when, you know, you're smearing feces and blood over each other and you're drinking the blood and um, you're having sex with anything and everything and anyone and, and what have you. And, and then just realizing that, oh, wow. I'm, I'm seeing things that aren't natural here. Mm -hmm. uh, scared the hell out of me. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, so, so Pamela's story is, is, you know, I, I, here's what I think. Um, I have heard rumors all my life about like cults and things like that. And this is in the wake of the satanic panic. I mean, we all grew up in that time. So I, I think that a lot of that is hyped up. Right. Uh, but 
the overlap between that and the strange criminal activity that was going on is weird. You know, it's weird how much prostitution and drugs there were in a tiny town in Southern Kentucky really early on. You know, uh, there's, um, there are a few strange killings early on. I did find some like people that were mutilated or, or in one case, a guy from, I think it was from Cleveland was driven down here and hung up by barbed wire, uh, from a tree in the like 1940s, you know? So, um, you know, some of these things sort of lend themselves to making you wonder, is there some occult connection? Right. So I don't think that Pamela's story is, is true in the sense that, People were really sacrificing uh, children, cutting them up and throwing them in a place, right? Could she have seen a gathering of people doing something, right? And maybe misremembered it or or something like that. I think that that's, that's certainly possible. Um, a lot of these murders that we were investigating and these disappearances that we were coming across in the newspapers, these outlandish stories from the turn of the century, but all the way through into modern times were astonishing in their scope. They were insane stories. There were stories of poisonings of entire classes of students. There were these stories of the dope rings and the sex rings. And a lot of this stuff seemed to reinforce the idea that there might be a cult or some group operating here. But I'm not sure that all of that's really connected when I first started looking at the constellation of murders and disappearances in this area and took into account the assassination of Sammy Catron, which immediately struck me as this killing of the king ritual, because Sammy was very much regarded as a sort of king-like figure in the community. There was the symbolism that seemed to be attached to it, even if not directly, even if the people that coordinated the assassination weren't aware of it. It seemed to me that it was possible that it was part of a ritual structure and that these other disappearances were also part of a ritual structure. And these murders, the unsolved murders, that even though the people that committed those crimes were probably not associated or coordinated in any way, it nonetheless struck me that they all could be facets and nodes in this larger ritual psychodrama that was playing out in this area specifically because this area was a natural, sacred space. Penny Royal is written and produced by your host, Nathan Paul Isaac. Associate producers are Darian West and Kyle Cadell. Original musical score by Philip Clonch. Edited and mixed by Boone Williams. Sponsored by Jarfly Brewing Company and the International Paranormal Museum and Research Center. If you're interested in joining the investigation and diving deeper into the story, visit pennyroyalpodcast.com and support the show by becoming a member of the Liminal Lodge. Thanks for listening and keep digging.